0: It was into a broken, hate-filled, violent world that the Prince of Peace was born in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, and he came with the good news of the gospel, and that message has made its way all the way here this morning. And this morning we get to consider and reflect on the glories of the good news of Jesus Christ in the seeing of the dangers, the difficulties inherent in false gospels and revisions of that good news about Jesus. We're in a series called Amazing Grace. This is the second message in Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians. And this morning we're in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, and Carol Sawyer is going to read the passage for us.
1: I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, that glorious gospel that Hattie preached to us in her testimony, make it alive to us and fresh to us, and stir our hearts to not only love that gospel, but to jealously and faithfully preserve it from all counterfeits, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in a building when a fire alarm goes off? You know how it works, the loud horns, the flashing lights, it's impossible to ignore. And maybe if you've been in your dorm or in a hotel or in a building where false alarms happen, it can get irritating and annoying. But there's a reason for a fire alarm system in a building like this one. When that alarm goes off, it is an alarm. It's a warning. There is an imminent threat There is urgent action needed now. Fire alarms require immediate and urgent action. And today's passage of scripture, this is a verbal fire alarm. This is the Apostle Paul pulling the fire alarm saying there is an immediate threat. Urgent action is needed. This is not a false alarm. The writer, Paul, is moved to being distressed and shocked and angry. And he's communicating that in the most forceful way he knows how. This is the only one of his letters that doesn't transition from the initial greeting and prayer to a a section of thanksgiving for the church or the people that he's writing to. He, he, He intentionally omits that as a part of the alarm and gaining their attention as to how urgent these issues are. He's shocked. He's distressed. And he's angry. So we might just pause there. And let me ask you, what moves you that way? What stirs you to getting good and angry? You know, anger is a powerful emotion. Anger wants results fast, which is why it can be so incredibly destructive when it's misused. But, you know, at its best, anger flows from love and God is actually the ultimate expression of what loving anger looks like. Anger says that things are terribly wrong and that something or someone that you love is threatened and immediate action is needed. So maybe just, again, consider what kind of threat or injustice moves you to the good kind of anger. Today, we're looking in on a situation in a group of churches where something so dangerous is taking place that the writer, Paul, is moved to distress and anger. And what is it that's happening that moves him that way? As we unpack this today, I want you to ask yourself, would you have been moved similarly had you been in his shoes. What's happened in these churches is simply this. False teachers have come in. These are young churches and these false teachers have come in and they're spreading a false gospel and people are believing it. It's taking root. This passage is a verbal fire alarm, but let's acknowledge, hey, this is These are events that happened 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. Why should we care about these things for us here today? Thankfully, our church doesn't need this verbal fire alarm in the sense that we're not filled with a false gospel that's taking root in this congregation. But we need these words. We need this warning so that we can be freshly reminded of the centrality and the preeminence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and also to the need to preserve that gospel against all false gospels so that we can be prepared. This passage can prepare us to take action whenever and if needed if a similar situation arises here. So here's the main point this morning. Church, Redeeming Grace Church, let us defend our church against false gospels and those who teach them. This isn't a a call to become the gospel police for the whole world. But it is a call to defend this church, our congregation, against any false gospel and everyone who might teach one. Or to flip it around and put it in the positive way. Church, since there's only one true gospel, let us guard it no matter what. So two simple points from this short passage. A false gospel is no gospel. First point. A false gospel is no gospel. Keep your Bibles open. Let's look back at the text. Verse 6 and then verse 7 as well. I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So let's take a look at the situation as it was happening back there then and then let's bring it forward to Fairfax here and now and apply it to our church and our lives today. Paul says he's astonished that they are so quickly deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ. Now, that word astonished is a familiar word as we worked our way through the gospel of Mark. That word astonished was used over and over of Jesus. People were astonished at his teaching, at his wisdom, at his power, at his miracles. But here, the astonishment is different. It's not wonder and awe Paul's not astonished with wonder and awe at what's happening in these churches. He's astonished with distress and with anger and concern. Why? Well, the answer here is given to us. They are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. What is that? What is the different gospel that these churches are turning to? Well, we're going to find As we uh, go through these six chapters of this letter, that is going to become clear to us over and over. But he gives a nice little summary in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you, Galatian churches, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The gospel will be nullified. His grace will be nullified. Christ will be of no advantage. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. What's he talking about? What he's saying here is that the modification to the gospel, the different gospel, isn't that they're denying Jesus. No, they're still fine with Jesus. They're just adding something to faith in Jesus, and that is becoming Jewish. They're saying, look, all you non-Jewish people who've come to faith in Christ, you can Believe in Jesus, that's great, but you also, the men need to be circumcised and all of you need to keep all the Old Testament laws and rules about worship and about uh, dietary laws and various purity laws and going to Jerusalem for the festivals and all those kinds of things. So it becomes faith in Jesus plus the works of the law. Now, what's so dangerous about that? Why get so lathered up about that? Would you be so concerned if someone was communicating similar things to you about the gospel? Why is changing your position about the gospel so dangerous? These people are already Christians. They're already saved. What difference does the gospel make for them now anyway? Well, verse 6 provides the decisive answer. Hear these words. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. And he doesn't say the gospel. What does he say? Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. See it? Him. Him who called you and are turning to a different gospel. The gospel isn't just some abstract idea. It's not just a thing out there to believe in. The gospel is the good news from God about the only way by which human beings can come into and live in an ongoing, never-ending relationship with the living God. If you have a lamp in your living room and you unplug the lamp, The light won't go on because it's got to be plugged in in order to work. He's saying the same thing with the gospel. The gospel is the plug that connects us to God. And to move away from the gospel, to redefine the gospel, to embrace a different gospel, to try to add to the gospel is to end up disconnected from the God of the gospel. I'm astonished that you're deserting him who called you. This is why the gospel is of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15. The one true gospel, do you know what it is? Well, Hattie preached it to us brilliantly. Thank you for that. Read her testimony if you're not clear on the gospel. Simply put, the gospel is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We saw this last week back in verse 3. Jesus Christ gave himself, verse 4, for our sins. And there is no alternative. There is no second way to be reconciled to God. So a different gospel is a false gospel, which is no gospel. There is an exclusivism here in this. The Christian good news is a gospel of grace, which means God's undeserved favor and unmerited love. It's undeserved favor and unmerited love to undeserving sinners who could never be good enough to qualify to be in a relationship with him. That's why Christ gave himself for our sins. Listen, to add works to the gospel message is a lose-lose proposition. Think about what you're saying. If if you add works to the gospel, you're either saying that you have something to contribute that's good enough that it could bring you or move you into acceptance with God, or you're saying that Jesus didn't do enough and his work was not finished and not sufficient, and so something else needs to be added to it, and both of those are false. So let's let's think about where this might show up today. Where are false gospels circulating today? I'll just highlight a, a a couple. The prosperity gospel is the most prominent false gospel in this country and sadly around the world. As I occasionally have a chance to travel internationally, it's so Grieving to me how deeply rooted the prosperity gospel has become in many other parts of the world. The prosperity gospel is simply this, that it's God's will for every person to be healthy and wealthy now. It's God's will for every person to be healthy and wealthy now. And if you want to get there, you just need three things. You need faith. You need positive thoughts. That's why it's sometimes called name it and claim it. And significantly, you need to make donations to, to certain ministries. Usually whoever is speaking or running the show on TV. And if you'll give enough of your seed to them, you'll be blessed by God. This is a false gospel. It promises too much too soon. As Hattie reminded us, health and wealth is coming in the age to come. But the call The discipleship from Jesus Christ is this: deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow a crucified Messiah. False gospel number two: many roads to heaven. Sometimes people will say, Well, you know, all religions really teach the same thing. We just we need to love our neighbors and try to do good, and and in the end, God's going to accept us all. It doesn't matter if you're Buddhist or Muslim or Christian or presumably atheists or whatever, we're all kind of headed to the same place. And again, that's a very different message than the message that Jesus teaches when he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. Third false gospel comes into view in this letter to the Galatians, legalism. Now, there aren't so many voices right around us here immediately today overtly explicitly saying what was happening in these Galatian churches where you you must add faith uh, works to 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 faith. But but there's a much more subtle kind of legalism that's much more dangerous for Christians in churches like ours. And it's what I call small L legalism. It's not the overt. Oh, you got to add works to your faith. But there's a subtle way that works can find their way into a church culture. So that if you don't vote a certain way or educate your kids in a certain way or dress in a certain way. Well, nobody ever says you're not a Christian, but you can kind of feel like you don't really fit. Like you're kind of second class. You're kind of an outsider. And and those other people kind of have an inside track to God. Or if you're on the inside, you can feel like, oh, everybody needs to be like us if they're really going to have that inside track to God. And sadly, there were. Themes of that present in this church early on some decades ago. It can, it can even be more subtle and personal than I've just described. It can come home to roost in us individually. This subtle influence of works in our understanding of our relationship with God. One author, Jerry Bridges, called it kind of the good day, bad day syndrome. Good day. You get up early, you meet with God, you have your devotions, you get to work early, you get a chance to share the gospel with someone, you go to community group and you pray for someone and you go to bed feeling good about yourself, expecting God's blessing to be there for you tomorrow. Bad day, you get up late, don't have time for your devotions, you're late to school, you're late to Work while you're there, you get mad and irritated at, 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 at someone. You come home, you're down, you're depressed. And so you eat that, that whole container of ice cream just to sort of make yourself feel better. And you fall asleep just feeling miserable. And we can ride this roller coaster of our confidence in God's love for us and our acceptance with him. Based on sort of what have you done for him lately? But, oh, brothers and sisters, there's a subtle kind of legalism that can creep into that good day, bad day roller coaster way of living. We need to learn to keep the gospel as the foundation for our relationship every day and all day. Do you know that when you have a bad day, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace? Do you know that? Some of you need to hear that right now. On your worst day, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. And do you know that on your best day, you are never beyond the need of God's grace? Only by grace are we accepted and loved and blessed by God. And that is good news, isn't it? Because that grace is enough. And the grace of that gospel is how we protect ourselves against these false gospels. Jerry Bridges again reminded us that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. How do we stand guard against false gospels? Preach the gospel to yourself Every day. We'll see over and over in Galatians that the gospel isn't just something that's for evangelism. The gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for the church. The gospel is for every day. That's why this letter starts with grace to you. Now, fresh today. And may this Lord's Day service for every one of you be a grace to you. As you behold and delight in the goodness of the gospel. The elders of this church are committed to saturating this church. Everything we do, every meeting we have, every communication we have, we want this church to be saturated with this one true gospel of grace. It is our central message and our only hope. Because a false gospel is no gospel. So Let us delight in the glories of the one true gospel. And church, let us defend ourselves against all false gospels. Second, Teachers of false gospels endanger healthy churches. Teachers of false gospels endanger healthy churches. Let me uh, take you back to the second part of verse 7 and and verses 8 and 9 as well. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be Accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Strongest possible language. Martin Luther, writing in the 1500s, lamented how quickly these kinds of things can happen in churches. He wrote, a man labors for a decade before he succeeds in training his little church into orderly religion, and then some ignorant and vicious wretch comes along to overthrow in a minute the patient labor of years. Well, that overthrowing of patient labor is what's happening in these churches in Galatia. Now, they're not 10 years old. In fact, these churches are only a couple of years old. They were planted probably in the year A.D. 46 by Paul and his coworker Barnabas, they were sent out from a church in Antioch. And now it's one or maybe two years later. And behind Paul and Barnabas, as they've left and gone to other places, men have come in and they are troubling the churches by distorting the gospel. That Greek word trouble is the word agitate. Think about what you see when you look at a washing machine doing its job. And that's what was happening inside these churches. And the result is that people in these churches are abandoning or deserting or turning their backs on God. Now, how dangerous is this? This is as dangerous as it gets. This is fire alarm dangerous. That's why this is the strongest language possible Paul is using to say, look, We came and preached a gospel to you. And if an angel comes and preaches a different gospel, let him be damned. That's what that word means. Accursed means anathema. It's the Greek word. And so what he's doing is he's invoking, saying, Would God damn forever, banish under eternal judgment anybody who preaches a different gospel, whether it's an angel. He said, even if I come back later and change the message, don't buy it for a second. No, you must hold fast to that apostolic gospel. And these unnamed false teachers are threatening the very existence of these churches, which is why he invokes this curse of damnation upon them, saying, Would God do this in order to to silence them and protect these churches? Now how should they respond? How should a church in this kind of crisis respond? There are two vital things you need to see here. First is this. They need to come back under the authority of the apostolic gospel. What is the apostolic gospel? Well, he says it's the one we preached to you. It's the one you received. It's the one that came from Jesus Christ and was given to his apostles, including Paul, and then was transferred out into the world by their Preaching Now, how can we be sure here today, so far away, if we have the apostolic gospel, the true one? Well, the answer is this. The gospel that was first proclaimed by Jesus' apostles as they received it from Christ, the early church recognized how vital it was. To understand and promulgate and and spread that gospel. So they preserved it in the, the documents that we call the New Testament. The Holy Spirit faithfully oversaw the preserving of that apostolic gospel. And so churches in this kind of trouble need to come back under the authority of scripture. And the apostolic gospel is preserved there. Second, what must churches in this situation do? I want you to hear this. This is really important for us. The members of these churches, the people who gather on the Lord's day, just like we're gathering here, the members of these churches are expected to be able to solve this problem. How do I know that? Did you notice that this letter is not written to the elders of the churches in Galatia? Who is it written to? It's just written to the churches. That means all the assembled saints in these different cities. This means, hear this, this is amazing and wonderful. This means that these church members, new Christians that they are, filled with the Spirit, these spirit empowered, Christians and spirit-filled churches, they are expected to have the discernment to sort out the true gospel from a false one and to have the wisdom to work with the elders to know how to get rid of these false teachers and restore the message of the one true gospel. Hear this. This is a powerful argument for, for the form of church government which is called congregationalism which we practice here Christ is expressing his authority in his churches through the elders there are elders in these congregations but but with the members of the church in fact the final authority in these congregations rests with the members it was this passage among a number of others that as, as we studied church government a number of years ago and revised our Practice in the legacy of Redeeming Grace Church. It was passages like this that impressed upon us the incredible authority that church members have in the eyes of the Apostle Paul and in the eyes of the, inspired, the inspiring Holy Spirit behind this letter. This should encourage and hearten you. You are responsible for your church and you are equipped by God to carry out that responsibility. So Paul writes expecting and hoping that these churches will come back under the apostolic authority of the gospel and that these members will carry out their mission and responsibility empowered by the Holy Spirit to purify these churches from these problems. False gospels and those who teach them are dangers to healthy churches. And so we might just pause for a moment for self-examination, some reflection. Who are you listening to? Whose teaching are you receiving? What are they teaching? Do you know who they are? Is there anybody whose influence is growing on you to accept a false gospel? If so, are you aware how dangerous that is? You know, it's not our job to pull the fire alarm about different gospels for the whole body of Christ around the whole world, but we must be vigilant in our own lives and in the lives of this congregation to watch over and protect one another, to preserve in this congregation the one true gospel, and significantly to make sure that those who teach here are keeping in step with this gospel. And so your elders are on notice by this passage expecting you to pray for us, encourage us and support us as we're preaching the gospel, but also question us, challenge us, and speak to us if you ever sense any of us moving away from this. We need to work together in this. Church, let us defend our church against false gospels and those who teach them. Now I'm going to sneak in a third point here because verse 10 is a little bit of a funny transitional verse, but but I want to do it. It'll fit in in some ways better with what Justin's going to bring next week in the next passage, but I want to do it because I want to have this opportunity to say thank you to you. And there's a sweet thank you embedded in this. Look back at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's beginning to transition from the danger of this false gospel to to doing something that he really hates to do and probably you do too, and that is he needs to defend himself. He needs to defend himself not because he really cares so much about what people think about him, but he needs to defend himself in order to defend his gospel, and he cares a lot about that. And it appears that in these churches... People have come in and they're slandering him, doubting his motives, saying he's just a man pleaser. He, he, he's, just, he's just in it for what he can get out of it, those, those kinds of things. And so he's going to have to sort of fall into a defense of where, who he is and where his gospel came from. And we'll start opening that up next week. But as, as I was reflecting on that difficulty this week, I was just thinking how different my experience is here. And I haven't consulted the other Elders, but I think I can safely speak for them, too, in this. Thank you for making it a joy to be a pastor and a preacher here. One of the hallmarks of this congregation, and as I say that, I mean two churches that have combined to one, Legacy, Sojourn, and RGC. I think I know both enough well to say this. One of the hallmarks of you, dear church, is how deeply you love the gospel and how deeply you respect and trust and submit to God's word. I can't remember the last time I got up here worried about preaching a message that was faithful to scripture and being rejected as a result of that. That's never happened for me here. That's not the experience of every pastor, and that's not the situation in every church. And we have always found in leading here in this congregation that when we lead through the word, things go well because you love and trust and put the word into practice. And so I just want to take a moment this morning and say thank you. I love you, and I love being a pastor in this church. Thank you for living under the authority of God's word. Thank you for loving and prizing and treasuring and defending the one true gospel. Thank you for speaking up when you're concerned. You know, I believe God has great things in store for us through this series. And I'm really excited as the word works in us over these coming months, as Galatians works in us in these coming months, I'm really excited for what might happen. Some of you may know that when I arrived here in RGC, Fairfax Covenant Church at the time in 1999, this was the first book of the Bible that we preached through. In community group the other night, some of the folks who were here were remembering the experience of of some people during that time where there was a little bit of like, another message on grace? Come on, we got it already. Like We know what grace is all about. Can we move on to something more practical? I can remember after a meeting one one Sunday morning, uh, uh, this dear lady coming up to me, she's a mom with young kids. she said, Mark, stop. Would you just please tell me what to do? I just want to know what I'm supposed to do. And and there were people kind of struggling with this message of of grace and, and, and what does that mean and how does it work out? And then kind of these people were remembering, just like, well, a friend over here and maybe this happened over there. And people began to get, oh, there were these epiphanies oh, there's more to grace than I realized. Oh, grace is for Christians. Oh, if I preach the gospel to myself every day, that can be a a game changer. And people began to get not only a deeper view of grace, but people began to enter into the freedom of the gospel in new and wonderful ways. Hey, maybe that's what God's got in store for us in these coming months. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it be a joy and a delight if every person here had a fresh experience of the glories of grace and the true freedom bought for us in Christ by his finished, all-sufficient, complete, never-to-be-improved-upon work? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, let's pray for that to happen. Join me, please, as I pray. Oh God, we thank you for the letter to the Galatians. Out of the mess and trouble those churches were in, thank you for preserving this letter to help churches like ours here today. And oh God, I pray that you would enable us and empower us to be a church that vigilantly defends itself against every false gospel and those who teach them. And on the flip side, oh God, I pray that in the coming months, that you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, and enable us to experience your grace in personal and deeper ways, and to walk in the freedom Christ has purchased for us. For your glory, I pray.
1: Amen.